Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today's episode is going to be a little different. I decided to bring on Sagar and my good friend from college, Jack Detch, who is the Pentagon correspondent for Foreign Policy magazine. You may have heard that Ukraine launched a major offensive in the eastern half of the country over the weekend, and I thought speaking with Jack as a reporter who's covered the conflict since the start of the war would be a great opportunity to examine how this could possibly change the game on the ground and shape all these conversations, whether it's U.S. support, NATO expansion, overall Western alliance, the conversation about energy going into the year 2023. If you enjoy this different style of interview, or you enjoy our other types of content, whether they're the Q&A episodes, the discussions, or longer form interviews, we'd love for you to go to realignment.supercast.com. Once again, that's realignment.supercast.com. You help support the show, but also get access to bonus content. You could also find the link to subscribe in our Substack emails or in the links in your show notes on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. Jack Detch, welcome to The Realignment. Good to be here, Marshall. Yeah, great to chat with you. We've known each other for, I guess, over a decade now. So it's good to find someone in this Pentagon reporting space who you could just reach out to and actually just ask pretty basic questions that I'm sure everyone has right now. So let's just start with the the basics. What happened in Eastern Ukraine over this past weekend? So what the Ukrainians were able to do were to seize some of the major railroad junctions in eastern Ukraine that the Russians had seized back in April when they launched this big Donbass offensive. So they basically put a baker's dozen of these major rail intersections, if you would. So Kharkiv, Kupiansk, Liman, which they're pushing on, and Izium, uh, which was a major site of fighting. It took the Russians a month to take Izium. Uh, and those are now in Ukrainian hands. So basically, this makes it very, very difficult for the Russians, if they want to force their way back into this corridor of Ukraine to get back in there. I mean, they have to do it under fire from Ukrainian brigades. And and I think what we've seen is just a new level of capability from the Ukrainians with these more mobile brigades. They can can move through vehicles, uh, through tanks, these Soviet-era tanks, lighter, faster-wheeled vehicles. So this tells you they have a lot of capability on offensive attacks. The question is going to be, can you sustain this? Are you going to push Further forward, it seems like the Ukrainians want to push even down to Sparodonetsk. So really just like taking this entire corridor, taking all of Kharkiv Oblast, maybe going into uh, Luhansk Oblast, which is part of the Donbass as well. Uh, you're obviously talking about a major block of territory. And the question is, can you consolidate that? Are you going to want to push further? And, and certainly there's going to be like a lot of uh, a gut check in, in places like Washington and London about how far they want the Ukrainians to go, especially when they're running short on ammunition, artillery, you name it, uh, they need more of it. Yeah, a couple of questions then. So one would be, what's the actual mileage here? Like what's, how big is this overall space that we're talking about here? You're looking at over a thousand square miles. It's about uh, 3000 square kilometers. So it's pretty significant area, probably the biggest territorial exchange of the war so far. Uh, now in Ukrainian hands again. Uh, But it just puts a a tremendous burden potentially on the Ukrainians, even 
uh, Alexei Reznikov, their defense minister, was saying over the weekend, now we've got to find a way to supply this uh, to basically lock this down into Ukrainian hands. Uh, it's not clear that they can do that immediately. But on the other side of the, the envelope, right, you have the, a Russian force, which is badly flagged at this point. Uh, you have Russian units that that really faded away as the Ukrainians approached these areas, uh, not to mention Russian units that that are really cobbled together of separatist forces of the Rosgardia, which is Russia's National Guard unit. So you're not talking about elite units that are coming from Russia. And we're still several months out from January when Putin's going to have his mobilization done of about 137,000 new troops. Not even clear all of those are going to go back to Ukraine. So the Russians are facing an enormous manpower shortage, and it's clear that the Ukrainians have a little bit of space to roll the dice here um, to potentially gather up more territory. What, what we've been hearing from Ukrainian officials all week is they want to go as far as they can uh, before the winter sets in. and You really see those lines kind of freeze up and it's it becomes more of an artillery exchange like we've seen in the past few months. So this is an opportunity for them to get as far as they can and potentially get into a situation where either they don't have to negotiate or if they have to go back to the negotiating table, they really have the upper hand over the Russians. So here's another question that I noticed at the start of the conversation, you mentioned these railway junctions as being critical for this bit of war and just talking about railways and warfare makes you think of World War One, like rushing rail to the to the front in those different bits. That seems very 20th century. So just like help us kind of get a picture of like. The, the transportation, how are things moving so quickly? Are these tanks that are driving these thousands of miles? Like, what's the actual picture look like in that end? So for the Russians, they were really using a lot of these rail junctions that they took from the Ukrainians to provide supplies in from the, the far west of, of Russia, from the Western military district. So you had places like Belgorod, where you saw sort of that buildup happen over months, kind of these Russian anthills that were coming up late in the fall and, and early into the winter. Um, those were sort of critical for in the early days, getting the Russian lines forward uh, and continuing into this April offensive right after the Russians were beaten back from Kiev. They needed places like Belgorod and they needed to liberate places like Izium in the far, far east uh, to push supplies forward to basically get those units supplied to get them steady, uh, to make sure that they could hold up a defensive line against Ukrainian attacks. What we've seen subsequently is is two things. I mean, one, the Ukrainians getting faster on the offensive. So like you said, uh, they have military vehicles now from the United States. Uh, they have these Soviet era tanks that they can push forward. So we're seeing that tank warfare, certainly in this context, isn't dead, but it's also a Ukrainian force that's going right up against a, a much thinner Russian line and sometimes Russian lines that are just breaking away from the conflict. So not a lot of defense from the Russian side and sort of a, a whole lot of offense from the Ukrainians that we didn't see before. I mean, right, like the Ukrainians weren't doing these style of, of wheeled attacks on February 24th. This is sort of a whole new breed of, of Ukrainian military, um, but they just sort of need to kind of keep up the pace, keep up the drumbeat, and they're going to need a lot more weaponry. And of course, the question is domestically, Marshall, um, what appetite is there going to be in Congress for, for much more of that? Yeah, your reference to the tank is really interesting here. I'd love for you to put a bit of your analyst hat on. So it seems as a kind of outsider is looking at this space, a lot of the narrative around tanks 
especially towards the start of the war, was really negative. We have all the videos, obviously, on Twitter of, of javelins destroying tanks. And the take kind of becomes, oh, wow, the tank is completely outmoded in this era. But now you're seeing how tanks are this really useful, offensive, um, you know, the, the way tanks have been used basically since the past century. Just give us a narrative on how we should think of the tank right now. I think it's kind of curious, right? Because in Ukraine, we we sort of had this expectation before the war that that Russia would dominate the skies with their superior missile forces, with their superior air forces. And those are the, the technologies that Russia has been modernizing under Putin for more than a decade. What's kind of happened is is the the Russian Air Force has been missing in action for for most of this conflict. We're not totally sure why, but probably a lot of it is sort of the similar, uh, training repair issues that we've seen with with other parts of the Russian force, the same manpower issues. So with that out of the fight, we've seen the Ukrainians now getting these wheeled vehicles from the West, uh, getting these Soviet era tanks, which they had, but but not on ma mass. And we've seen sort of what's happened is NATO allies in the East to get Abrams tanks, to get modern tanks, have sent forward their stuff into Ukraine. Uh, and the Ukrainians are able to throw that forward as the Russians seemingly have no air game. Uh, it's just sort of a really bizarre situation, to be frank, that we're, you know, seven months in uh, and the Ukrainians still control the, the bulk of their skies. Now, uh, still, they, they can't use the air power like they'd like it in the east um, with with the Russian air defenses up against the border. The, the Western military district in, in Russia, which abuts the Donbass, which abuts Kharkiv, um, has tons of S 300s, S 400s uh, that can shoot Ukrainian planes out of the sky should they attempt to do it. Um, but it, it just hasn't been a factor. And, and that's kind of the fascinating question mark over all of this. And here's another question then. You've made reference to these manpower issues. Obviously, Russia, I think people know the conventional wisdom, population decline, all those various, various challenges. But Ukraine is still a country that has a much smaller population. How can it just be possible that Russia doesn't have the manpower to, let's say, even hold the lines, let alone take Kyiv, obviously? I mean, you're talking about an enormous country in, in Ukraine. I mean, it's the size of Texas, of course, that's like a, an old trip. You just complain any any for, any uh, foreign country to to the size of an American state, but it's a huge place, um, and it's it's conducive to you know a different type of warfare. And and I think what we've seen from the Ukrainians too is just a lot more determination to fight than than certainly what the Russians expected. So when you're talking about the force ratios the Russians needed to put up to to take much of anything. Um, they just they didn't have the numbers to do it. And as you mentioned, I mean, when when you were bringing in enormous uh, portions of manpower early in the campaign to take Kiev, just, uh, you know, created huge log jams. So you've seen the Ukrainians go from taking on the Russians in, in terms of manpower from these sort of hit and run attacks early in the conflict uh, to now these lines being more thinned out, the Russians taking you know, upwards of, of 40, 50,000 casualties here uh, and now having a much thinner force. Um, so that's that's a major issue here. And two, you just have to put this in context of Russia's wider military aims in, in the region and in the world. Um, you know, this is not the biggest conflict in, in Russia's book, as, as strange as that would seem. Um, you know, you would be looking at a potential regional conflict uh, a potential nuclear conflict where they would have to, you know, expand into NATO territory, at least on the Russian books. And of course, they haven't followed them 
uh, by the line in Ukraine, but that's what you'd be expecting. And and so I think there's sort of a, a little bit of pressure to hold back from the Russians. There's obviously political pressure from the Russians uh, to make this a, a much narrower conflict. Certainly what the, the Kremlin line has been is has continued to be for, for the last seven months since February 24th is that this is a special military operation. This doesn't exist outside of the Donbass. This is to protect Russian speakers. And to keep up that line, you, you sort of have to play it slow, play it narrow. And so the Kremlin is kind of in sort of this, this self-defeating game a little bit. Uh, they can only ratchet up the pressure so much. Uh, and when you're facing a determined opponent like the Ukrainians, who now have just oodles and oodles of Western kit, uh, it's very difficult. So let's talk about the Western kit side of these things. So as I was understanding a bit of the narrative here, the U.S., NATO, Western countries were giving a lot of defensive weapons. Obviously, this is a offense. So how does that kind of play into the spread that we're seeing? That's right. So, I mean, first, when when American military aid was first authorized to Ukraine in 2017 under the Trump administration, it had been debated under the Obama administration, had never gone forward. It was strictly defensive lethal assistance, which effectively meant a lot of Javelin anti-tank missiles, most of them not even on the front line. So a lot of them were in storehouses in places like Lviv, way far to the West, uh, for fear really of, of poking the Russian bear. The U.S. didn't want to escalate things with Russia, potentially, if they were to try and take this outside of Ukraine's borders or, or to make it sort of some sort of proxy conflict. Uh, now, I mean, since February 24th, what we've seen uh, is going from sort of the shoulder fired stuff uh, to much more ground vehicles, um, potentially air power of the U.S. And, and other countries have helped the Ukrainians fix up their aircraft, not not any of the newer stuff, uh, as well as uh, the, the big deal has been bringing them up to standard with with NATO level artillery and the multiple rocket launch systems like MLRS and HIMARS. So now we see the Ukrainians kind of almost edging up towards that NATO level. Uh, but you have to just keep arming them and arming them to, to sort of get up to that level. Uh, and they're, they're spending a lot of ammunition. I mean, what we keep hearing from Ukrainian officials in the West is that they're just spending a ton of ammunition in this fight in the South, in, in Kherson. They're outgunned by the Russians. Uh, you're fighting at, at lower force ratios. So there, there are more Russian troops out there for them to take out. So this is just a very difficult conflict if you're trying to consistently arm them uh, for this type of entrenched uh, ground artillery warfare. A question then when it comes to the, let's say, U.S. Western slash NATO policy towards Ukraine, like what is our objective when we give the Ukrainians arms? So now, especially that we're past the February period where the concern is, oh no, like the country, the nation and state itself is going to fail. We're past that. Ukraine's on an offensive. Then that brings to mind the question of, is the goal taking back Crimea? Is the goal putting an end to the separatist republics? Like how do you think the US and once again, Western South NATO allies conceive of what the actual objective of like military support would be? I mean, that's the fascinating question, Marshall. I, I don't think there's one answer. I, I, the U.S. has sort of struggled with this question. Of course, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, was the first to come out and say they wanted Russia to be weakened at the end of the conflict. That prompted rebukes from the National Security Council, from President Biden himself, who have been much more conservative about the way they couch this conflict. 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and, and sort of having to deal with Russia as a permanent security council member, uh, as a nuclear armed state. Of course, the Biden administration would love to get Russia back into nuclear arms treaty talks, which have, have fallen by the wayside. They want to get the Iran nuclear deal, which, which Russia is a party to. So it's, it's difficult to see where the exact line is for the U.S. at, at this point. Um, they seem to be much more conservative in, in terms of how far they want the Ukrainians to go uh, before the winter or, or how far they think is feasible, whereas the Ukrainians uh, seem to really be peddled to the metal, uh, getting as far to the border as they can, getting as far to the south as they can. Um, official U.S. policy is to have the Ukrainians, to help the Ukrainians get back whatever they can. Um, but I think the, the question is going to be um, if the, the Europeans are really feeling the energy crunch in the winter, uh, if this conflict drags on, gets more painful and there's no political will, do you see a situation uh, where the Ukrainians have to sit down at the negotiating table and there's American and European pressure to end the conflict, even if you don't see the Ukrainians get past the February 24th lines or even to retake Crimea? But, but the conversations I've had with Western officials in previous weeks, so not not this week and not seeing what we've seen on the battlefield so far this week, uh, is that Crimea, some of those other territories might be a, a little bit of a stretch here. Something that I know folks are definitely a little confused on is sort of the size and exact nature of the Western aid packages. So for example, you hear people say, oh, like we gave them 40 plus billion dollars worth of arms. How are they possibly running low on ammunition? But as I understand it, there was a significant percentage of that 40 billion that wasn't actually like direct arms. There has been different packages. So can you actually just sort of articulate like what the actual drip of support has been, like why these are broken up into tiny packages, like those specific parts to give people some clarity? Yeah. So I, I think we're at total uh, over 15 billion in uh, military aid to Ukraine since the beginning of the conflict. Now, that's over double uh, Ukraine's defense budget for the last year. So, I mean, you're talking about a, a much more muscular military that's that's out there in the field. Um, there are a few factors that are involved, right? First off, the U.S. was using uh, mo mostly in the conflict for a long time presidential drawdown authority, which means those are weapons that are already in, in DOD's arsenal that they can throw right at the Ukrainians and they can absorb. So things like the Javelin anti-tank missiles, things like the Stinger shoulder fire rockets, uh, which are used to take out Russian helicopters and, and famously, of course, in Afghanistan, uh, the CIA provided those in the 1980s to take out Russian helicopters as well. Uh, now we're sort of in a situation where the U.S. is thinking longer term, what is Ukraine going to need to deter a future Russian invasion? Or if you sit at the negotiating table and you kind of hash out uh, where the territorial lines are vis-a-vis uh, -vis February 24th, uh, if there's a stalemate in the conflict, if there's a, a frozen peace, uh, what are the Ukrainians going to need uh, to make sure the Russians don't cross that line again uh, like they've done twice now? And those aren't things that are in American stocks. Those are things like air defenses, um, you know, potentially aircraft parts. If if they actually go over this this next gap, it could be uh, more air defenses. So you're talking about uh, things that the U.S. would take and need to produce through industry, uh, and that's through um, through a congressional authority, which would of course take more time. Um, so it's it's kind of these different little aid packages that are coming through. Uh, of course, the the things that it, that can go forward now are just being sent forward now. But the U.S. has has gotten much more into the mode of of future thinking, 
uh, of getting the Ukrainians on up to NATO standard. And that's just going to take more time. So those things can still go forward. Uh, it's just you program the money now, the weapons come later. We're actually starting to, we've made reference to this a couple of times near the start of winter. How does the just onset of that period actually play into folks? Because typically we obviously have this idea of Napoleon and Hitler, they're stopped by the Russian winter, but you know that was actually 600 miles to the north, but closer to Moscow. So it's Ukraine. So how do we like, how are we thinking about this, like kind of on a metaphorical level? And how is it actually playing onto like the tactical strategic situation on the ground? I think it's, I, I mean, the tactical strategic situation is the main influence, right? Uh, you're going to see temperatures drop below, um, you know, three, five degrees uh, Fahrenheit in, in the winter in Ukraine. I mean, it really is uh, a brutal winter, even if you get into November, December. Uh, and once you get into the spring, uh, the roads turn into mud. A lot of these wild mechanized drives that we've seen from the Ukrainians in the past few weeks probably turn to naught. So, that means I, I think we're going to see much harder artillery lines. And, and so that's why the Ukrainians are really pressing uh, for a lot more artillery ammunition. The one thing that's that's really important to mention here, too, right, is the Ukrainians have been operating on Soviet era kit, especially when it comes to artillery. They've been operating 152 millimeter artillery cannons. A lot of that doesn't exist anymore, right? Because it was being supplied by the Russians before the war. The Russians cut off those supplies, so they were depending on Western allies uh, to backfill them with that stuff. So since they can't get that, they need to get more 155 millimeter. That's that's NATO standard stuff, and they need to send more forces out. And, and one thing, Jack, for for, for non-military folks, can you explain right. like the actual significance of the difference between the 152 and the 155? So if you're like in terms of like NATO standard versus Soviet standard, like those different bits, they're pretty similar, um, and they're they're able to fire at about a similar range. It's just, to be honest, the biggest problem is the issue of inventory, right? Um, that this is something that had been standardized in the Ukrainian military, because of course it was a, a Soviet military. It was under the dominion of the Soviet Union until 1991, uh, and then broke away. And still, uh, you know, for the past 30 years, had been armed by the Russians, had sort of stuck to, to Soviet practices, to Soviet military doctrine. So it's more of a question of actually just getting them any functional artillery in the first place. Um, and they're certainly going to need that uh, for the wintertime when you just don't have those major offensive drives. Um, so not not a huge difference in capability, uh, but something that they're just going to need a lot of. Another question I'm sure folks are going to wonder about is you've you've made reference to this possible winter stalemate. But as I understood the narrative, like the conventional wisdom this summer was frozen ground, high casualties, artillery duels. What really was happening this summer up until, let's say, like this past weekend where we seem to have a, a different narrative shift? Well, I think you, you saw the Russians first open the front uh, in April in, in the Donbass. And, and the Ukrainians, of course, ran in to plug up that gap after uh, the Kiev offensive sort of stalled out. Uh, then, I mean, the, the big thing, right, was the feint to the south that forced the Russians to send more troops to, to basically reinforce the South, because what you saw once the Ukrainians started getting HIMARS, rocket artillery, was they were able to kind of start hitting the major Russian supply points, the major Russian ammunition depots. So that sent a lot of panic into the Russian ranks, forced the reinforcement of those areas, and the lines just became very, very thin uh, in the Donbass and, and in the East. And they were just trying to defend less ground, hoping the Ukrainians wouldn't 
punch through there. Uh, and what we've kind of seen now is is the Ukrainians able to push through there just because of uh, the breakup in the ranks, uh, because of the lack of trained forces, as we're talking about. And so that has led to kind of the situation now where you have this huge Ukrainian redoubt in the east uh, and potentially an offensive coming in the south. But it just seems like the Russians weren't able to to quickly enough plug and play their forces to defend both fronts. So as we're wrapping here, the big question for me would be the next, let's say, three, four months taking us into 2023, what should listeners, policymakers in the West, and then I guess, frankly, even like Russian um, strategists, like what should folks be focusing on as we're thinking about this story? I mean, it's hard to think about, but sort of the the ammunition and artillery duel that we've talked about is, is a huge component. Um, how many bodies are being spent by both sides, how, how much ammunition is, is being spent. Um, the Ukrainians are being very, very careful about that. Uh, the Russians are certainly going to want to be careful about that. Uh, and the other thing I think that we need to focus on that's that's been underreported because we've seen just so much change in the battlefield is the economic warfare picture. Uh, the Ukrainians have potentially lost by the end of this year, uh, you know, upwards of 35 to 40 percent of their GDP. You're talking about a country that's going to have over 50 percent of the population in poverty by the end of next year. Um, this is something that's going to need a lot of, of aid and attention, not, not just the military side of things. And the Russians are, are clearly attuned to that. That's why we saw the Russians respond to this offensive, not with an offensive of their own, because they don't have the, the people to do it, but actually attacking Ukrainian power plants, attacking Ukrainian infrastructure. So it might not just be a, a battlefield game, but it's sort of the question of, can the Russians respond asymmetrically with these sorts of attacks that actually impact and hinder the Ukrainian economy uh, that could really have uh, some serious damage outside of the battlefield picture? And, you know, the real last question here would be, it seems like so much of the actual political side of this war has just been the willingness of outside Western and NATO forces, including the U.S., obviously, to support the Ukrainians, despite whatever costs those would be, whether they're fiscal or otherwise. Do you think that the current success has basically expanded the window of confidence the Ukrainian leaders, such as Zelensky, would be confident on actually being having the time to do this? It's, it's a fascinating question. I think it's going to depend a lot on how much pain the Russians inflict economically over the winter, right? We've heard a lot of talk about the Russians taking gas prices even higher with, with shutdowns. We've already seen shutdowns on the Nord Stream 1 pipeline through Germany. Uh, the G7 is talking about a price cap on, on Russian natural gas. Uh, if the West can kind of summon those, those forces in the energy markets, places like Norway, Azerbaijan, the North Sea, elsewhere in the Gulf to actually get those supplies and, and keep their economies on track, uh, then I, I certainly think you're, you're talking about a lot of patience, a lot of window for the Ukrainians. If the economic pressure and economic levers go in the other direction, um, it, it could be really difficult to, for Ukrainians to make that argument in Western parliaments in, in Germany and France. Uh, so I think the appetite is really going to depend on, on how much the Russians can bite economically in the West. Well, Jack, this has been incredibly helpful. Thank you for answering questions that I and I definitely know a bunch of folks have had coming out of this weekend. And definitely, to your point, 
it's very difficult to know what the long term or even the medium term looks like. But I think for the next week or so, all this stuff will give folks a lot to chew on. Um, would you want to throw people to your social media, um, anything you're working on, your foreign policy reporting? Sure. Uh, I'm at Jack Detch on, on Twitter. And um, yeah, just just stay tuned to foreignpolicy.com. We'll be uh, doing more coverage of the of the, uh, the offensives later this week. Uh, so really trying to dig into the battlefield minutia and, and explain that to, to your listeners. Thanks for joining us on The Realignment. All right. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like the show's mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.